But uh, we've been looking into this section in the Gospel according to John. John was one of Jesus' earliest followers and friends, and uh, he's writing down a whole bunch of things that Jesus taught and things that Jesus did, and he records also um, the passion portion of Jesus' uh, life, well, ministry, really, his death, his resurrection. And in chapters 13 through 17, John sort of narrows his focus into this scene, um, this uh, particular scene with Jesus and his disciples there in the upper room, and um, Jesus is teaching them during this last Passover meal about who he is and what he's really come to do and accomplish and what that then means for them and how it is that he wants to bring his kingdom through them after it is that he departs and rises um, and ascends. And so um, as, as you stare into this, you should be thinking to yourself, like, this is Jesus' last words to his disciples. It's, it's his final like farewell discourse. And so for us, we've been asking, you know, just kind of bridging the gap. If that's what Jesus was teaching to them as he's sending them out, then what does that really mean for us? How do we look like this group of, of disciples um, who bring his kingdom to bear in the world? And so we've been trying to bridge that gap every week. And so we're just walking through section by section by section. And uh, today we me. There we go. Hoorah! There we go. Okay. So we've been in, uh, I forgot where I left off just now, but oh, we're crossing into John 15 now. And so um, as we look into the beginning of John 15, what we're going to find is Jesus uh, sort of shifts the way in which he's teaching a little bit. He begins to use this uh, metaphoric sort of poetic language. It seems to me to be kind of summarizing a lot of what he said up until this point. It's a very famous, uh, uh, very familiar kind of passage. Um, it's about Jesus being the vine, his father the vine dresser, and us being the branches. So what I'd like to do is, uh, is just read it for you. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17, although I'm telling you... Um, uh, I intended to preach a sermon that would cover all 17 verses, and we're going to get through three. But I'm going to read the whole thing because it's important for context. Um, so if you have a Bible, John 15, 1 through 17, I'm going to read it and then pray. And then, uh, actually, I got a little bit of a disclaimer and then an outline for you. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. 
for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. I don't know why I thought I could get that all in one sermon, but let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, thank you so much for the time to be able to come together and open up our hearts and our minds to, uh, to you and to your son and to this glorious, amazing truth that we actually are friends of God. Father, we ask that this morning by your spirit who leads and guides in truth that you would help us to be open to that truth. Help us to give ourselves to, to your molding and shaping. And God, would you uh, help us to leave here with just a clear picture of who you are, of what you're like, and all of what that means that we might actually bring your son and his kingdom into this world. We need you for this, and so please, please, please answer our prayers, for we ask in the most matchless and the most precious name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen and amen. So, uh, this passage, uh, quite familiar, I'll, I'll bet everybody in here has heard of this sort of statement from Jesus if you've been in the church for any amount of time, I'll bet you've heard, you know, the, I am the vine, my father is the vine dresser and you are the branches. Probably not even just the statement that you've heard, but I'll bet you've even heard sermons preached on, on this passage in the past, probably, maybe if you've been in the church for a while, many sermons on this passage in the past, which, which causes a little bit difficulty for me. Uh, not just in the sense where I feel the need to come up with something new and fresh to impress people or something like that, but more that familiar, familiarity can often breed a, a whole lot of falsity, and it can also breed maybe even like a contempt, and I don't mean like an anger towards the passage, but more of like a, eh, who cares, I've heard this before. And so it causes us to maybe just kind of sit back and be like, yeah, yeah, I know exactly what's going on here. And I kind of thought the same thing, to be totally honest. I was not looking forward to actually preaching this, this passage because in my mind it was sort of like, yeah, I already, I already know what's going on here. But I'll tell you what, over the last two months and, and in my reading of the Upper Room Discourse, which I've been reading through the entire Upper Room Discourse at least three times a week for the last several, several months, every time I get to this passage, I, I read it and I think to myself, like, what just happened? Like, Jesus just went from... I am in you, and you are in me, and we are in the Father. It gives this amazing truth, right, of, of how secure you are in him, that no matter what happens in the world, how you see it or how you feel, like that is your security. We've been using these Russian dolls to illustrate that, but I'm not going to put them together today. But the idea of just he is in the Father, and we are in him, and he is in us, and then he just like closes and he says, this is what is really true. And then you get into 15, and he's like, 
but don't screw it up or I'm going to throw you in the fire. And you're like, wait, what, what just happened? <laughs> like, now, now all of a sudden you're a branch, but, but if, you, if you don't abide, then you're sniffed out. You're kind of like, what is taking place here? And so I've had, some, I've had some issues with this, not only that as I'm approaching it just at a cursory read, but also some of the, the things that I think um, most of us just tend to believe or we've been taught. And so there's, there's, a, there's a number of different ways of approaching this passage. And, and I could tell you this because I, I read a number of different ways of approaching this passage, coming from very, very smart people who I think are doing doing a great job at interpretation of scripture. Um, but, you know, we're all, we all have, you know, the potential to, to miss the point or something, as, as do I. So I, I want to give you a couple ways that it's interpreted and tell you why I don't think that those are the ways and why I'm smarter. I'm just totally kidding. That's not what I'm... <laughs> I, I, want, I actually want you to, to recognize that I'm, a, I'm trying to approach this as, as humbly as I can because there is a bunch of different ways to interpret it and mine is just going to be one of those perspectives, okay? So um, take it for what you will. I hope it's really helpful. I'm, I'm doing my best, I promise you, to, to read and understand what's going on here. Um, but one of those, one of those um, interpretations is probably the most common um, is that there's really two natures of branches. There's, there's a category of branches that are in him, and that means that they actually have the spirit within them, that they really are regenerate, that they are saved, that they are the people of God. And so there's sort of this different nature to this branch. They've been born again. And then there's this other group of branches that, that haven't been born again, so they don't have that nature. And so when it's realized that they don't bear fruit because they can't, because they're not born again, then they're thrown into the fire and they're burned. So, so that category of branches is separated from this one, right? So that's a pretty common way of interpreting this. I'll tell you why I have an issue with that in just a second. The second uh, major interpretation isn't so much about salvation and justification and being in him as it is about the idea of sanctification. And here's what I mean by that big churchy word. Um, it really just means growth in Christ. And so bearing fruit is what it looks like when one is growing in Christ. So they are regenerate, they are a part of the people of God, and now their work is to bear fruit. Um, which I think is, is a solid interpretation until you get into the question of, well, what about that whole like tearing off of the branch and throwing, throwing it into the fire thing? Because you just said that I was in you, like that was meant to paint a huge picture of security, but now it seems as though in order to remain in you, that this work, there's got to be some work in me. Otherwise, in other words, like it creates a sort of fear, right? Um, that I might actually be pulled out of him. Right? And so, so I, I, I wrestle with both of these interpretations and, and I didn't think that either of them was really all that right or true. And the main reason is because of the way that Jesus starts this, this, uh, this portion of teaching. He starts with, I am the vine, the true vine, the father is the vine dresser, and every branch that is in me, right? So again, back up, read through, this, read through the upper room discourse, and you're going to notice this language of being in him, and him in us, and then you get further on in the upper room discourse, and in Jesus' prayer especially, this I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you just gets repeated over and over again. And it seems as though Jesus really wants us to feel secure, and so when he starts this, this teaching, and he says, every branch in me, that's immediately where your mind should go, is I'm secure in him. Okay, so then what do you do with, with the rest of this, right? And to answer this, I think I want to paint a picture, first of all, of the context in which we're dealing and therefore the tone even of Jesus, which I think is super important. And then just hit each of these things. What is the vine? What is the vine dresser? And what are the branches, right? And so the first thing that I want to do is I want to think, first of all, about the, the tone and the setting of this, right? Now, if you recall, I've got this, I think I might have a whole list of what's taken place in the upper room up until this point. 
But if you recall, at the very beginning of the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus gathers his disciples, and the first thing that he does, right? And mind you, Judas Iscariot is present, right? So just think of the tone of this room. Jesus gathers his disciples, he takes off his cloak, he gets down, and he begins to wash their feet. And he's, he's painting a picture for them about who God is and what God is like. That God is a God who stoops into uncleanness and unclean people, and he washes them. So he's, he's giving you a picture of the nature of God. As you go on, he gives this new commandment. And the new commandment is reflecting on the stooping in to wash the dirt, right? That's the way that God is. So now I'm calling you to be like God, which is like me in the stooping. And so he says, a new commandment I give you, love one another. And then he adds, as I have loved you. Then he goes on and he begins to speak to Peter about his denial, right? Peter's got this arrogance and he's like, oh, I would never deny you. And he said, you're gonna deny me three times. But in the midst of that, if you recall, he says to Peter, you will follow me. He says, not right now, you're going to deny me, but you will follow me. And so he gives this promise to Peter in the midst of his arrogance. Then you get him saying, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, why would I have said that my father has, you know? And he's telling them about this new heaven, this new earth, this promise that even if pain, agony, tribulation comes your way, I am preparing a place for you. And then he goes on to speak about his own identity. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the express image of the invisible God. He wants them to have a clear picture of who God is and what God is like based on his teaching and the identity of Jesus, his actions. And then he gives them these encouraging words. Greater works will you do, right? Greater works will you do. So again, he's encouraging them. And then he says, and so ask anything in the Father's name and I will do it. Again, another word of encouragement for hope. And then he says, and I'm gonna give you the spirit of truth who's going to lead and guide in truth. And then he says, I am going to depart from you, but, but, and I know you're going to feel like orphans, but I'm going to come again. So again, he's, ma- he's making all of these promises meant to secure them. And then he says, we will have divine peace, the spirit in us, and as we looked at for two weeks in a row, that he's going to overcome the ruler of this world. And so if you're a disciple and you're sitting there and you're hearing this, right, the tone of Jesus is super important as you carry on because remember this, when John wrote this, there were not chapter markers, right? So you're supposed to just read it right through. And if you're reading it right through, the tone of Jesus is him sitting there saying, I know what you're going to feel like, and I know what you're going to go through, and I want you to know who God is and what God is like in the midst of whatever it is that you're going through. So the whole thing is meant to give them a clear picture of who God is and what God is like. And so when he gets into this whole vine and vine dresser and branches thing, you have to have all of that and that tone in mind to read it and understand it properly, right? So where does he go next? Well, the first place that he goes after all of this is to speak of himself, his, his own identity and the identity of the father. So if you look back with me, he says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Let's take these one at a time. The first thing that he says after all of this encouragement, security, I am the true vine. Now, if you're sitting there as one of these disciples in first century Palestine area and you're, and you're hearing somebody talk like this, a whole bunch of things are going on in your mind immediately. You've got some practical things that are going on with the imagery of the vine, but then you also have some very huge theological things going on in your mind as well. The practical things really kind of simply, like you think about the vineyards in, in Palestine, which are, there's still tons of them, but back during that time in the first century, a person who owned a vineyard and was producing grapes, uh, these, were, these were a great commodity for 
for them. More People drank probably more wine, even though it might have been more watered-down wine in that day than they did water for health reasons. And so there's, there is money here in this vineyard, right? There's, there's money here. And, and grape vines actually have a tremendous ability to grow and grow and grow if they're taken care of well and can produce actually in one kind of, uh, what, what is it, a bush of grapes? John, what's a, what's a grape bush thing? What do you call that? Is it just a cluster? Well, no. Anyways, I was thinking like bush versus tree. Anyways, um, so you get like an apple tree. <laughs> Sorry, I lost all of you. Track mix, come back, come back, come back. <laughs> so you think like an apple tree can produce so many apples in the one tree, but a single bush of grapes, <laughs> because, the, because the, the vines, well, because the vines can grow so far though, they're all a part of the one thing, but because the vines can grow so long, out of one you can get a, a, a tremendous more amount of fruit than you could out of just one simple tree. So in other words, right, summary of the practicality here, is it was a great commodity. The, the grape vine was, was a grape, uh, grape, grape commodity. It was a great commodity. This is going to be a long day, guys. <laughs> but even more so than that, besides the value that was there, just the practical value of it, there's certainly some huge theological things happening in their minds as well. Because in their minds as first century Jews, the entire story of what God has been doing up until this point is playing in their minds. As Jesus has been doing this in the entire upper room, he's been drawing them into the story of God, but here now he's doing it again by using this imagery of himself as the vine. And so for them, they would think, first of all, about the nation of Israel. So over and over again in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is referred to as a vineyard or as vines in very positive ways too. So look in Hosea chapter 10. He says, Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. So you got Israel here, just the, the guy Israel, right, who was a part of the forefathers of the Jewish religion and right, of the family of God. So you got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who later becomes known as Israel. And God wants to use this family, he wants to use these people to bring his beauty into the world, right, to bring his, his glory into the world, that people might know who God is and what God is like. And so he calls them to bear fruit. That's why this imagery is used. If you trace back to Adam, what was his, what was his goal? Be fruitful and multiply. And then when he fails, what does he say to Noah? He says, be fruitful and multiply. And then when he fails, what does he say to Abraham? Be fruitful and multiply. And so he's calling this people to be fruit-bearing people. And by fruit-bearing, it means bringing his presence, his beauty, his glory into the world. And he's saying here, with the person of Israel, like that individual, he did a great job at that, in other words. He brought God's presence and beauty into the world. But you also see this as the entire nation, the group of people. So in Psalm 80, it says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and it filled the land. In other words, the people are now actually doing what it is that God intended. So they're in Egypt, right? You know the story. They're in Egypt. They're being oppressed by Pharaoh. And God takes them out of Egypt and he puts them in this land. And he sets them up in this land so that they can bring his presence and beauty. And that's the point behind the covenant too, the law. The law was all about, here's how it is that if you follow these commands, you're going to be able to be a greater use for me in bringing my presence and beauty and glory into the world. And here's here what the psalmist is saying is, that was happening. The vine was actually producing the fruit that he called it to. However, you don't get much farther into the Old Testament story when you notice that they stopped doing that. 
right? You read through First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, you read through the prophets, and you notice that they fail tremendously at bringing this fruit, or they fail at being the vine or the vineyard that they were always intended to be. And so, as the story carries on, you read this in Isaiah. Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill, like we were just describing, He dug it and he cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vat in it. He's doing all of this work to try to get this vine to be fruitful, right? To do what the vine, the vineyard was intended to do. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. It failed at fulfilling the purpose of bringing his presence and his beauty into the world. You get into Jeremiah. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? And so the vine, the vineyard of Israel, the people of God who are supposed to be fruitful in the land and bring his presence and beauty and glory into the world are failing at this. And they're sitting there and they're thinking to themselves, okay, the, the vineyard of Israel has, has failed at being the very presence of God in the world. And what we've been looking for this whole time is for God to do that more profoundly, more clearly, to make himself known, to bring his presence and his beauty into the world. But if Israel keeps failing, then what are we to do? And Jesus says, well, let me tell you what God is doing. That in our failure and inability to bring his presence and beauty into the world, he enters in himself. And he says, not only am I a vine, who can, in some degree, bring presence and beauty and glory into the world. And not only am I the vine that brings presence and beauty and glory into the world, but I am the true vine that brings presence and beauty and God's glory into the world. And as soon as you hear Jesus say true, you should be thinking back, again, if you're just reading through the Upper Room Discourse, it's not gonna take you very long. Just two minutes before this, maybe even less, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And what he's talking about there is the revelation of who God is and what God is like. So you can't understand who God is and what God is like unless you look at Jesus. And he's saying, but when you look at me, you see the Father. Like, this is what God is like. So when Jesus calls himself the true vine, he's again just reflecting back to things that he said before. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know who God is and what God is like, look at me, right? Then he carries on. And he speaks not just of his own identity here, but he also goes on to speak of the father's identity. If you look back, he says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Now, a vine dresser is a particular kind of gardener, right? They're they're working with they're working with vines, obviously, right? And they're harvesting grapes. Now, this this kind of uh, gardening um, carried with it a great amount of, of detail and concern and wisdom. Right? Because the vine dresser cares deeply about his vineyard. Right? He cares deeply about it because, again, it's a high commodity for him. He, he doesn't want to waste any of this. So the vine dresser is going to, take, going to take very good care of what it is that they have. They don't want to lose any of it. And so when Jesus calls the father the vine dresser, he's saying that this vine dresser is one who has this amazing vineyard that he cares very much about and he exercises wisdom within that vineyard to bring forth the fruit. And he exercises his wisdom also with great care and concern because he doesn't want to lose any of it. Why would anybody want to lose any of their vineyard? 
So what Jesus is doing here is he's giving you a picture of who he is as the great revelation and then how God wants to work with the branches attaching to the vine to bring his presence and beauty in, right? You tracking with me so far? All right, like three of you. We're going to carry on anyways. And so he wants, to, he wants them to be fruitful, just as he called Abraham and Noah and, and Adam. He wants them to be fruitful. And so this vine dresser has this mentality. And so um, Paul will reflect on this in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians. They're having this issue in Corinth about like celebrity pastor and whatnot, and they're divided, the church is dividing. And he says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? He says, well, they're servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow work workers, and you are God's field, God's building. The idea here is you gotta, you gotta think about the motivation of the vine dresser. If you had a vineyard, you wouldn't want any of it to go to waste. And you would treat it with great care, with great concern, and you would exercise the wisdom that you as a vine dresser would have in order to bring forth the fruit. Like that's your goal, right? Is to bring forth the fruit. So you've got to keep that motivation in mind as you carry on into the branches. And so who are these branches? Well, if you look back, as I said, every branch, Jesus says, in me. Again, he's already used this language, we've gone over this, but he's saying, I'm in the Father, you are in me, I am in you. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the disciples right there and anybody who places faith in Christ. So anybody who, who really desires Jesus to be their king is actually a branch in him. And what that means then for the vine dresser is that he wants more than anything for you as a branch in him to produce fruit. Like that's his goal, that's his prerogative, that's his desire, right? Because he, he puts you in him and now he wants you to accomplish the thing for which he's setting forth. And if that being fruitful is to, is to, uh, re- to reflect his presence and his beauty and bring his glory into the world, like that's what he's after, right? So his motivation for every single one of you in here is that you might actually bring God's presence and his beauty and his glory into the world. Like that's his desire for you. He wants you to bear fruit. So how is he gonna do this? How is he going to do his best, exercise his wisdom with great care and concern to get you to actually be fruitful, to fulfill that purpose for which you were put in him? How is he going to do that? Look, carry on. And he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Awfully puzzling, that first one, so we're going to handle that one second. <laughs> but the first thing that you notice that he does, it says that he prunes. This word, kathairo, is really, really important. He prunes. What's that really all about? Well, I absolutely hate gardening. <laughs> I don't understand why, why they, they have just perfectly good sections of produce in every single grocery store, and some of you feel the need to get totally dirty and I'm totally, I'm totally kidding, I, but I'm just not a fan. I'm not a fan of gardening. So I don't know a whole lot about gardening, but, <laughs> but I have read a little bit about pruning. However, on the surface, if I didn't know anything at all, and I went up to a vineyard, and I saw this vine dresser just clipping away at things, I'd be like, what are you doing? Because to me, it's completely counterintuitive to think that cutting away something is going to help it grow. Like, that's just not intuitive to you if you haven't been taught that, right? What's intuitive to you is this seems like a waste, right? It seems like you're wasting something. 
However, with the knowledge of a vine dresser, and, and not just the knowledge and the wisdom, but the desire of the vine dresser, you would approach the vine dresser and you'd have to assume, well, you clearly are smarter than me. I mean, you've been successful with this vineyard. You must have more wisdom than me. And you also must have great care for this vineyard more so than me because I have no stock in the vineyard. So it seems crazy to me, but because you have this wisdom and you have this great desire for your vineyard to produce fruit, then you also have this great care for it. So if I humble myself and I, and I think about this vine dresser as actually being smarter than me, as actually having a perception different than mine, as actually having a care over the vineyard different than me, then the pruning begins to make a little bit more sense, right? But this word, kathairo, that we find here is super interesting in other places that it's used. See, here it's used as pruning because there is this garden-vine metaphor, but in other places, the word is specifically used to speak of cleansing. In fact, in Hebrews 10, notice this. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities. Okay, so pause there for just a second. The author of Hebrews is saying there's this law that was given, and the law was given to help you be fruitful. But it wasn't going to be able to fulfill it completely. It says, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. It, it, it wasn't capable of actually producing the sort of fruit that God really wanted from his people. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, kathairo, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. They would be forgiven, Right? They would, that would be taken away. They would be cleansed. So to be pruned is to be cleansed. Are you tracking with me? So like the vine dresser, he, does, he doesn't waste anything. He doesn't waste his own wisdom. He doesn't waste his care for the vineyard. What he wants more than anything is for that vineyard to produce fruit. And so he's going to do the hard work of cleansing. Now, cleansing for, for you and me might, might, again, from our perspective and even from our our, you know, our way of just thinking about things, cleansing could obviously seem like a complete waste. And cleansing could also feel like the cleanser has no care. And you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so as, as followers of Jesus, like, there's this constant cleansing taking place, right? When, whenever you come across like, just the issues in your own heart, maybe your, your own behaviors, and you, you get exposed, or something happens, you're confronted with what is not good in you that keeps you from bearing fruit. You don't enjoy that experience, <laughs> right? Nobody's like, oh, I'm so great. You caught me in the sin. I'm cleansed now. Woo. No, you're like, this is painful. And not only is this painful, but why, God? Why are you, why are you playing this out in my life? It seems like you have no real care for me. But from the perspective of the vine dresser who wants wants you to produce fruit, who cares deeply for you. He's not doing this out of anger. He's not doing it out of wrath. He's doing it totally out of love and with infinite wisdom included. He knows everything about you and he wants nothing more than for you to bear fruit. Right? So that's what this kathairo is really all about. That one I think probably none of us learned anything new just now. The taking away is super tricky. Right? So you get back and you look back with me he says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then every branch that does, he prunes that it may bear more. The vine dresser who's looking at this vineyard, 
who wants it to be attached to the vine and be fruitful, put his son on display, bring his beauty and glory into the world, is going to take out of his vineyard one that he grafted in for that purpose and just throw it away? That doesn't seem to make much sense at all. If you notice the wordplay used here, you have kathairo and you have iro. Now, just put your thinking up on for just a second here, okay? When John is writing this gospel narrative, he's writing in Greek, as I'm stating here, but Jesus didn't speak in Greek. He didn't talk in Greek. He, he talked in Aramaic, which was, uh, you know, a, a dialect of, of Hebrew. And, and so what John is doing is he's taking the teaching of Jesus and he's using the words of Greek language to try to convey a point that Jesus was trying to make. And so when he uses both of these words and you hear him say, right, you hear him say, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he iros. And every branch that does bear fruit, he kathiros. Do you get it? It's like there's, there's poetry here. There's something going on. John wants to convey a point. He wants to let you understand the motivation of the vine dresser and, and keeping you attached to the vine. And so he wants to convey that both of these are actually talking about the same goal. The same goal is that his people bear fruit. So what is this takeaway really all about? Well, the word iro is used other places in the New Testament, straight from the mouth of Jesus, according to John 2. And it actually has nothing to do with taking away. It actually has everything to do with the exact opposite. Right? So when you think of taking away, you're thinking of separating. Right? You're thinking of cutting off. But the word is actually used other times by Jesus himself, referring to the exact opposite. So let me show you. In John 5, Jesus said to him, that is, he's talking to this paralyzed man, and he says, get up or take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. The same word is used here for healing, which is to make whole, right? You carry on in Jesus speaking about his own death. He says, no one takes it from me, that is my life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. Now you're talking about resurrection. You're talking about overcoming death. You're talking about overcoming the ultimate separation. And so this word, um, I don't know exactly why English translators in, in John 15 translated as take away uh, when they could have just said take up. Maybe it was because they were approaching it with the, the idea that there are these two different natures of branches and one needs to be done away with. And so they're approaching it that way and they just translated it. I'm not quite sure of their, of their motivation, but they could have said every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes up. They could have said that. And here's the reason why they could have said that they would have understood the way in which a vine dresser works with the branches that are drooping, with the branches that are falling away from the rest of the bush. <laughs> they're, they're, not, they're not tied to the trellis anymore. And as they step away, or as they get away from really the root and where it is that they would be finding their nourishment so that they could bear fruit, as they get farther away from that, they begin to get off of the trellis and towards the ground. And, and Grapevines, actually, this, again, something that I just learned this week because I hate gardening. Grapevines will actually, if they end up touching the ground, will attempt to root themselves into the ground. And that will actually kill them. And so what the vine dresser wants to do, and, and also, mind you, it's dry, arid, ancient Near Eastern ground, and so it's going to die if it lays down there, right? So what the vine dresser does, who cares deeply about his vineyard, it's a commodity for him. He wants it to bear fruit. He's going to find those vines. And in his wisdom and in his care and concern for the vine and for his vineyard, he's going to lift it back up and he's going to tie it back into the trellis that it might bear fruit. Right? So 
to me, this makes a lot more sense insofar as what John is conveying from Jesus' teaching. He wants, as a vine dresser, for his vineyard to bear fruit. So with, with great reverence, I want to present to you a paraphrase, Anthony's paraphrase. This is not Bible. <laughs> and again, you can agree with other interpretations if you want. But here's my, my paraphrase. Every branch in me that is not bearing fruit, but is feeling separated from his great love and purpose, that is God's, he lifts up off the dirt, he weaves it back onto the trellis. And every branch that does bear fruit, he cleanses by continuing to keep it from that which seeks to kill it. He does this so that every branch in me may bear more fruit by revealing me to the world. There's a lot more words than what John said. Um, and again, you don't have to agree with me entirely here, but this seems to make a lot more sense. And I know what you're thinking. What about right after this in verse six when he says that, that he, you could be like one of those branches that doesn't bear fruit, and then he's going to pile them up and throw them into the fire. We'll get to that next week. So <laughs> stay tuned for that. Uh, little plug there. But anyways, uh, so this is what he's after, right? This is what he's after. And, and so if you think about that, that branch that is falling away, that is getting towards the dirt, that is maybe even attempting to root itself in the dirt, like you've probably been there before, Right? I've been there before, like I'm sure you've been there before, not just with the cleansing, but also with the just, you're distancing yourself from the Lord. You, you're distancing yourself from, from the rest of the, the vineyard even, and, and you're distancing yourself from things that are good for you, and you start going down this path that, that leads to not just sin, but also leads to despair, leads to depression, leads to anxiety, leads to fear. Like you start getting yourself away from the, the vine dresser and the vine and you, you're, you're just sinking into the dirt. And for some of us, we've actually gotten to the place where it is scorching us. Like the ground is just scorching us and we feel farther away from God than we've ever felt before in our lives. And maybe even as we're being scorched, we're still trying to root into the ground. And here's what I wanna say to you. God loves you so much that he's not going to let you do that. He's not. And right here today is proof of that. If you're in that place right now, if you're so far away from the Lord and you feel so distant and you feel like he's just pushing you farther away, let me tell you that is the exact opposite of what he is doing. What he is doing is he is pursuing you. You're here today because he's pursuing you. You have friends sitting around you or family members sitting around you who love the Lord and he is pursuing you through them. He wants you back on the trellis. He wants you to produce fruit. He wants you to fulfill the purpose for which you were brought into him and the purpose for which you were made. Like that's his desire for you. And I want you to hear this because if we mistake the heart of God, then we will just keep on going and we will dig ourselves into that dirt. And this is why he goes on and he speaks about abiding because there is some element of, of our work to, to, to partner with God in that. And again, we'll talk about that next week. But I want you to know the heart of God is for you, not against you. He is absolutely for you. This is why I think right after this, Jesus makes this statement. He says, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Already you are clean. You know what that means. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, no matter where it is that you're at today regarding your sin or anxiety, depression, fear, wherever it is that you are at, he is saying you are clean. 
And what, in their minds, that would immediately go to the priesthood and how it is that they had to cleanse themselves before they could enter into the very presence of God. And what he's saying to you right now is you are clean. You can enter into the presence of God. You can be who it is that he always intended you to be. You can actually spend your life bearing fruit instead of going down that road of depression or that road of sin. You don't have to do that. You don't have to do that. You're clean. And this is sealed, obviously. Obviously, certainly sealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. How could he make a statement like this? How could he make a promise like this? Wouldn't, wouldn't you, like when, whenever you're in that situation, you feel so unclean. It's so hard to believe that I am clean. It's so hard to believe that the vine dresser really loves me and wants me to bear fruit. It's hard to believe that in those times. But Jesus died. And Jesus rose. And a guy who says he's going to die and rises from the dead makes a promise like this, you can believe it. You can absolutely believe it. So I'm going to pray for you, for me, <laughs> for us, and then we're going to have a time of, uh, of communion and of singing and rejoicing in just this great truth that the Father is our loving vine dresser. Father, thank you so much for, thank you so much for the great truth that you have, oh, that you've given to us by sending your son that we might have a clearer picture of you and of who you are and of what you're like. And Father, I ask that this morning you would clear away falsity about you and that you would help us to know your great love. You would help us to know your motivation in the cleansing and you would let us know that you are present. You care deeply for each one here. Father, let us know this, please. In Jesus' name, amen.